Hello, thanks for tuning in today. We're going to be talking about weight loss medications with Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, an obesity medicine physician. In this episode, we discuss a drug that's been in the news a lot recently called semaglutide, which is sold as Ozempic or Wegovy. Dr. Stanford shares insights on what to expect when taking this drug, including the good, the bad, and the ugly. We also discuss how medications fit into the broader picture of obesity management and why Dr. Stanford is such a vocal advocate for defining and treating obesity as a chronic disease. Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford is one of the first fellowship-trained obesity medicine physicians worldwide, and she brings an incredible wealth of experience to the table. She's currently an associate professor of medicine and pediatrics who practices at Mass General Hospital and teaches at Harvard Medical School. Her exceptional credentials include an MD, an MPH, an MPA, and an executive MBA. Dr. Stanford is also the recipient of many awards for her scholarship, leadership, and advocacy. She's also a whole lot of fun to talk to. Without further ado, let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Stanford. Thank you for being here again. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking today about obesity medications, and I wanted to give you the opportunity first to just introduce yourself and talk about what it is to be an obesity medicine physician to set the stage for where you're coming from. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. For those of you who are just meeting me, I'm Dr. Fatima Cody-Stanford. I am an obesity medicine physician and scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School here in Boston, Massachusetts. I care for patients with overweight and obesity across the age spectrum, from children to adolescents to adults and even older adults. So my patients do range from as young as two to as old as 90, so a really broad spectrum of individuals. I work on the complex disease that is obesity, which we know to be a chronic relapsing multifactorial disease process where different perturbations may lead to a person having the disease, whether it be genetics, development, environment, behavior, or combination thereof. And as someone who is fellowship trained in this space, having completed three years of fellowship in this field of obesity medicine, my goal is to provide the full spectrum of tools available, which range from lifestyle modification to anti-obesity medications and pharmacotherapy treatments to devices to surgical interventions. And for many of my patients, they have utilized different tools along this treatment spectrum. So we're going to be focusing today on the medication side of it. And I wanted to talk about two drugs, which are very connected, that have been in the news a lot recently, but use that kind of as a mechanism to just have a broader discussion about the role of medications. So we're going to be talking about Wagovi and Ozempic. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Those are the brand names and then the semaglutide is the compound name, correct? Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about it because a lot of people mm-hmm. get these really confused. Yes. So semaglutide is the actual drug. You might hear semaglutide, semaglutide, depending upon who's talking, tomato, tomato. It's called <laughs> S-E-M-A-G-L-U-T-I-D-E. This medication falls in the class of a medication called GLP-1 receptor agonist or glucagon-like peptide 1 receptor agonist. Semaglutide is made by a company that has one drug for the treatment of diabetes. The labeling of that is Ozempic. Ozempic is the trade label for diabetes. 
Whereas Wegovy, that's spelled W-E-G-O-V-Y, is the label for the treatment of obesity. So it's important. Diabetes, Ozempic, obesity, Wegovy. Same exact drug, just wearing a different color jacket today. One is the, the diabetes jacket, one is the obesity jacket. In terms of even the dosing, the first three doses of the medication for Ozempic and Wegovy are the exact same. It's only when we get past that that we get into a few differences in the actual treatment doses. The Wegovy goes up to a dose of 2.4 milligrams, whereas the Ozempic goes up to a dose of 2 milligrams. These are once weekly injections. And it's important for us to recognize that this is just one of, of several other medications that are approved by the Federal Drug Administration to treat the chronic disease of obesity. These medications under the trade name of Wegovy for obesity are approved for ages 12 and above here in the United States. They do work specifically on two primary pathways of the brain, POMC or the pro-opiomelanocortin pathway of the brain, which is the anorexogenic pathway, which tells us to eat less. It stimulates that pathway while decreasing what we call the orexogenic. Orexogenic is the opposite of anorexogenic, which causes us to eat more. That's the AGRP pathway or the goody-related peptide pathway. So when we take these medications, often for those that are responders, and notice I said for those that are responders, not everyone responds to these medications, but for those that are responders, it really can affect hunger, how hungry you feel between meals, satiety, how long it takes you to feel full once you actually start eating. And these are major factors that can contribute to how much adipose you're storing. Adipose is fat. It's a fancy word for fat, but this is the organ that is fat. So that's the medications in a nutshell, those specific medications. Excellent. Now, why are these ones getting so much attention? Are, are they the first medications to use that mechanism or are they more effective than the other ones for some reason? So actually, this is the second generation of the GLP-1 receptor agonist. The first medication that came out for obesity was a medicine by the name of Saxenda. It was a once-daily injection as opposed to a once-weekly injection. I will tell you that it was a similar thought process with this particular company where they first got it approved under the trade name of Victoza for diabetes and the trade name of Saxenda for obesity. On average, when we're looking at the studies from those people that took that daily medicine, they lost about 6.5% of their total body weight. So let's say someone carried 100 pounds of excess weight, they would lose on average about 6.5 pounds, let's just say. Mm -hmm. The difference with this medication or this newer medication or the second generation longer acting medicine is on average, people lost about 15.5% of their total body weight. So you know, if that's a 100-pound person, about 15.5 pounds, so that is a sizable increase from that person that lost about 6.5%. And so that's a, a major shift in what we saw in that first generation. And so I think with the, that high degree, getting closer into the realm of what we might expect from bariatric surgery, not quite, but getting closer there, it's gotten a lot of attention. Now, there are there is a drug that has been approved by the FDA for Diabetes already called terzepidide or Monjaro, which actually shows about 22.5% total body weight loss is set to be approved by the FDA this year. And so that will be on higher, obviously, than the 15.5 that we have seen with the average response from the semaglutide, which of course, Ozempic for diabetes will go be for obesity. And so that will, I'm sure, generate a lot of attention when that approval 
comes through, which, like I said, is likely set to happen in 2023 because it's being fast-tracked through the FDA now for approval for obesity. Yeah. Is that is that 15% number the average or median? And you're seeing some people with more and some people with way less? Absolutely. 100%. I think that's important to note because a lot of people see the average and they say, well, what am I expected? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, I don't really expect it. It's it's average, which means think about you taking a test in school. They're going to be the people that get the perfect scores. It's great for them. And then there's people that get lower scores and then there's the average, right? So mm-hmm. you are going to have people, let's say, that might lose 30% of their total body weight. They would be high responders, right? like way, way over on the right side of that curve. Whereas, you know, someone else may lose only 5%, which obviously is significantly less than, than average, but still, you know, could be a possibility. Mm-hmm. I wanted to know, how does your experience in the clinic align with what is seen in clinical trials? Yeah, I mean, I would say that my experience in the clinic having over a thousand plus patients on these medications is is similar to what we see in trials. You do have those high responders. And if you were to go look at the trial data, so Wilding and colleagues published this particular paper, their landmark study in the New England Journal back in 2021, you see these scatter plots, which are those kind of the variation in response. And so you may have a person you put on and they lose, like I said, 30% of their total body weight, which is well above the average, right? That's double what we would have expected. And then you do have those people that are low responders. They lose like 2%, 3% of their total body weight. Obviously, they're disappointed because in their brains, I should lose at least this amount. Mm-hmm. Average being average doesn't mean that they'll lose that. And in order for us to get to an average of 15.5, we did have to have those 30s and the twos to kind of bring that about. And so I think it's important for people to to recognize that there is heterogeneity. You know, all of us are going to respond differently to these medicines and we don't really know until we try, right? Mm-hmm. So it's important to know that. Mm-hmm. And what's the trajectory of weight loss over what sort of time? And is it kind of linear that a pound a week or what does it look like? Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of differs. But if you look at the trial data, and I would say this kind of mirrors what we see in clinical practice, the studies for semaglutide were carried out initially for 68 to 72 weeks. And so you kind of just see a gradual loss over that time. It's important to note when you're looking at Wagovi, which is the treatment for obesity, the semaglutide, there are five doses. And so you're gradually being titrated a- along those five doses. Mm-hmm. Those doses are 0.25 milligrams, 0.5, 1, 1.7, and 2.4 milligrams. And so when we're looking at individuals what I have noticed, particularly in clinical practice, which does differ from the trials, is that everyone doesn't technically advance at the same speed. Mm. According to the package insert, you should move people up every month. So after 0.25, you stay there for a month, and you go to 0.5 for a month, and 1 for a month, and 1.7 for a month, and then 2.4. But I have to listen to the person in front of me. So let's say someone has side effects, and the number one side effect from any of these agents would be nausea. Um, that happens in about 40 to 45% of individuals, particularly as we're titrating the dose. If their nausea is debilitating in any way, why would I double their dose? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I will wait for their bodies to get acclimated to that dose before moving them along that treatment pathway, which is listening to the person in front of me, as opposed to just being rigid in terms of the package insert. And I think that that comes with with treating, you know, like you want to make sure that you're abiding by what's best for that patient, not just what overall is inclusive to what, well, you know, what is stated. So that's, that's important to know. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that it's an individual journey and that you need to tailor to what's tolerable for that person. That brings me to a question about the side effects, because for any drug, it's always a trade-off of the cost and the benefit. So how do you approach that 
with a patient? And how do you think about who's a strong candidate who may stand to benefit and for whom, and then for other patients where maybe the downsides might not be worth it? How do you assess that? Well, the side effects for this class of medicine are very, very minimal. So I'm not necessarily using those as an exclusion, but I'll explain which which groups that we cannot use these medications for. So these would just be a no starter. So for patients with a history of medullary thyroid cancer, we cannot use these medications. So those patients, I would never consider these meds. For patients that have multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2, this would be a complete contraindication for use for those patients. There are some relative contraindications. So let's say you have a history of pancreatitis, whether it's acute or chronic pancreatitis. It doesn't say that you can't use these, but it could exacerbate pancreatitis if you have a chronic history or if you've had a bout of pancreatitis, it might induce an episode of pancreatitis, which would be, if of course, if it was caused by the medicine, then we, of course, wouldn't use the medication. So those are some of the only, and then all the big one that I can't believe I just didn't know state at the outset is we don't use any medications, any of the meds that are FDA approved from 1959 to now, and patients that are pregnant or claiming to become pregnant or breastfeeding, for example. So these would be groups that I just would not consider them. Now, if you're planning to become pregnant, but maybe in a year from now, yes, we could, could initiate it. But we do like to stop the GLP-1s at least two months prior to conception. So that's important to note. For any people that may be contemplating pregnancy in the future, that we would want to stop these two months prior to conception. So these are these are things that I would consider. Now, the side effects, let's talk about what they are. Like we talked about nausea being the number one side effect. The second most common side effect really has to do with another part of how the drug works is constipation. So this medicine slows movement through the GI tract. So if you're slowing movement through the GI tract, Things are getting backed up sometimes, and constipation is by far the second most common side effect. The third most common, believe it or not, might be diarrhea. And this is going to sound like a smelly conversation, but you can have stool stuck there and you can still have liquid coming around the stool. And so we still may not push out. I think of kind of like a plunger situation, all of the solid stool, but that can be something that some people experience. For some people, there is vomiting, right? That nausea is there, but most people don't have vomiting. There are some people that may develop that. A lot of these are, like I said, titration specific. And once the body gets acclimated, these do typically abate over time. For those that it doesn't abate over time, obviously this would not be a suitable treatment strategy for you for the long term. Because if you're very sensitive to these and they never go away, then they're not going to just magically go away. But that's a more rare situation for, for these medications. The body typically becomes acclimated to it. And what you experience when you first start it you shouldn't feel like, you know, as you get deeper into this use and your body becoming acclimated to this agent being on board. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to what the official indication is in terms of weight loss and then and your, any thoughts on off-label use in that regard? Yeah, so all anti-obesity medications, and that's the full spectrum from fentramine to pyramate, bupropion, naltrexone, orlistat, liraglutide, semaglutide, just to name a few are approved in the following settings. A patient with a body mass index of 27.5 plus an obesity-related disease like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, type 2 diabetes, obstructive sleep apnea, heart disease, et cetera. Or a patient with a body mass index greater than or equal to 30 with or without comorbidities, meaning mm -hmm. you don't have to have another disease process. Mm -hmm. And when we're looking at that and looking at the American public, we're talking about over probably 150 million people that meet criteria for medications for the treatment of obesity. So a sizable percentage of the population do actually meet criteria for pharmacotherapy. 
in terms of what we see the most recent paper published on what is the actual utilization of these medications in patients that meet criteria, it was a paper published by my favorite author, myself, in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings in 2021, where we show that only about 1% to 2% of people that meet criteria for medications actually were on them here in the U.S. for the treatment of obesity. So I think there's probably been a slight uptick from that 1% to 2%, but I would still say it's still a very small minority of that, over 150 million people. And we're just talking about the adult criteria. We're not even talking about the pediatric population. So that's what we see. People still have yet to wrap their head around obesity as a chronic disease, like we treat other diseases like high blood pressure or high cholesterol. And so if we haven't really wrapped our head around that, then thinking about medications as a treatment modality like we do for those other chronic diseases is kind of a little bit far-fetched, although I would say that there has been a shift in the narrative both here in the U.S. and around the world with regards to that. I wanted to ask how much weight loss is clinically meaningful for those that are in the category where they're overweight plus an obesity-related condition? I'm, I'm guessing the answer depends on the condition, but can you give a sense of that? Yeah. So I would say that we in the obesity medicine world say at least 5% total body weight loss can have meaningful benefits. And so that's much, much under, you know, what I'm giving you is the averages for many of these new medications, particularly. So 5% can have show improvement in blood sugar and, and blood pressure. When we get into those higher percentages, like 15%, this is when we start to see improvement in things like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's mm -hmm. fat around the liver that gets taken into the liver and causes a, a disease there. Obstructive sleep apnea, higher percentages around 15%, whereas where we see major shifts in those kind of conditions. So I always like for my patients to think about this as incremental change, 5%, 10%, 15% for those that are getting 40%, obviously we're getting into remitting many, if not all, of their chronic diseases associated with obesity. But we won't get there overnight, right? Like even with these medications or surgical interventions, this is not an overnight process. And even when we treat, we are often modifying treatment as we go along in time. This is a chronic disease. Different perturbations can bring us back to struggling in a way we may not have last year, you know? And so mm -hmm. we have to be attentive to what the perturbations are and how we can respond to those perturbations with interventions that have the data and evidence behind them to support their use. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about weight regain and stopping the drug, because that's obviously a big part of the conversation, how this fits into like a lifelong strategy. Yeah. You know, I, the way I like to answer that is, is really for us to even look at lifestyle, which we have used as like the, the only treatment strategy for obesity for, for a long time, despite the fact that unfortunately is not effective in 90% of individuals who have utilized it. If I were to begin an exercise program and I was getting great benefit from that exercise program, I can't expect that exercise program that I was doing back in 1998 to still be working for me now. It just isn't, you know, I'm not no longer doing it. Or let's say I instituted a very, very healthy diet plan, you know, with focus on plant-based protein, et cetera, minimal processing. It's very effective while I'm using it. Similarly with these medications, they only are helpful for the individual if they are effective while we're using them. As soon as we stop them, they're no longer being utilized. Similarly, if, if I were to stop someone's high blood pressure medicine, I don't expect their blood pressure to remain at this whatever wonderful level it may have been with therapy when I pull those medicines off. Or let's say I'm using a medicine for, to treat someone's high cholesterol and I needed a medication to bring it down. As soon as I stop it, 
as expected, we would see their cholesterol reemerge. And that's exactly what we see in these medications. They're acting on different pathways of the brain to regulate weight. And as soon as we pull them back, they're no longer there. So we're no longer acting on those pathways, just like if we were treating any other chronic disease. And so I just think, you know, for us to think about it globally in terms of like, do we think that the kale that we ate in 2007 is still working for us now? It was great back in 2007, but we're in 2023. And so we would still need to be doing that today to see the benefit. I'm an avid exerciser. And I don't expect that my workouts from the, the early to mid-90s are still working for me today. I still had to do my workout today for me to get the benefits that I'm getting from exercise in my, my daily life. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, love that. I love that answer. It's, it already addresses a lot of the question I wanted to ask next, which is how does the effectiveness of these medications guide our thinking about obesity as a disease? And I think it just really highlights the fact that this is an ongoing process that has to be managed through multiple avenues, usually through multiple tools. Absolutely. That's exactly how I think about it. And, you know, I really get a lot of, I really like to hear actually a lot of my physician colleagues, my other healthcare provider colleagues that may be undergoing therapy for the first time with pharmacotherapy. These are the people that have been treating patients, many of them who've had obesity or have obesity, and they themselves have been struggling and, and telling their, their patients to just eat a little bit less and exercise a little more and keep eating less and exercise more. They've been doing the same thing, listening to their own guidance, and unfortunately, their body being resistant to just that as a treatment modality. I had a recent physician that I care for say, after getting one, one of these newer medications, I just can't believe I finally know what it's like to feel full. I just never knew what that was like. And mm-hmm. now it's re- her, her rethinking everything that she's told patients, particularly in this domain, as she's herself undergoing treatment. Now, many people don't choose to share that they are undergoing treatment themselves, which does, I think, make my job a bit harder because I, I may be treating the same people that might be on social media saying, oh, yes, I just used diet and exercise. And you're like, mm, that's not true, but okay. Because that's what's accepted, right? That's what's accepted if you do it the right way the right mm-hmm. way being diet and exercise, then you have done it, you know, you've done it the way that's acceptable. But we don't do that with anything else. If your blood, yes, for many people, your blood pressure will go down if you eat well and exercise. But if you, if that doesn't work, we don't say, you know what, sorry, we're just, well, you just keep your blood pressure high. We're not going to do anything about that. What about your cholesterol? Still high. You've done all the stuff. You know, I just want you to just suffer a bit more. Why don't you just have that plaque accumulate in your arteries and Maybe you have a heart attack or stroke. I don't know. Just, just let's see. And that's basically what we're doing for, for patients with obesity is what we've done. It's what we still do, I would say, most commonly in practice. And I, I just wish that we would change our, our narrative or thinking. And I think as people are getting on these medications and are experiencing this kind of aha moment for those that are the responders, like, oh, is this what this is supposed to feel like? I don't wake up every morning immediately thinking about what are my meals for the next seven meals today and tomorrow and the next day that, oh, wait a minute, I have to remind myself, oh yeah, I should eat. And oh gosh, I don't have to eat all of these things. I can eat part of these things or half of these things. We don't have to be confined to whatever our thinking is, but our thinking is governed by these pathways in our brain. And I think it's just, it's, it's for me, when I learned about these different treatment modalities, how they were affecting us, and I was like, wow, this is really revolutionary. And, and hearing my patients' accounts is, is life-changing for me. 
Yeah, I remember I heard on a podcast, someone commented that for them, this changed their relationship with food. And I, I was very intrigued by that. It really does. I had one woman, she's 64 years old, and she told me that for the first time at Thanksgiving dinner, she wasn't worried. And I said, well, what do you mean? She was like, you know, there's always so much great food and I'm always worried about what's the scale going to look like in the next few days. And then, oh gosh, and then there's going to be another holiday and then there's another holiday. And this, I could just go into Thanksgiving dinner, have some, you know, bits and pieces of the things I liked, leave, not have to take a plate with me and feel good. And she said it took her 64 years, but for the first time she was able to enjoy Thanksgiving dinner, enjoy the things she liked without having this stress about what was going to be the aftermath. And, and that really, I think, spoke volumes to like how it changed her relationship with food. And so, yeah, that's what I'm hearing from my patients. Well, my, my mind is immediately going to uh, my background working in companion diagnostics and, and cancer therapeutics and the precision medicine there. And I'm wondering how much we're going to have drugs that are addressed to someone's particular biology that is contributing to their causes and that, that it aligns with the diverse causes of obesity. Well, you are speaking my language. So this is (laughs) what I have told all of my pharma companions about. I obviously, and this comes up a lot, you know, that I've I've spoken to many of the pharma companies. This is one of the obesity experts. But one of the constant feedbacks I give all of them is that I want to be able to tailor the therapy to the right person. Mm -hmm. When a cancer drug comes out, it's not like, oh, there's a cancer drug. Let's just treat all the cancers, you know, it's specific, right? It's a specific receptor or a specific mutation or whatever it's used. And so what we've seen with oncologic therapy over time is we have seen this major improvement in longevity, treatment of of even metastatic disease in many cases, because we're able to tailor therapy for the person that needs it, the right drug for the right person at the right time. I really think that's what we need in obesity. Right now, it's there's this group of meds and I'm like, okay, you're Jane Doe, let's let's try this medicine. All right, John Doe, let's try this medicine. Let's hope. I feel like I have a gestalt. Maybe this will work, but I don't really know. And you're right. There, there are obviously different pathways for certain people that may need specific treatments. And if I know that at the outset, then that would save us a lot of time, a lot of energy, and would help people understand a bit more of this pathophysiology. For example, there may be patients, you try all the historic meds, and you get to a medication called metformin, which is a medicine that's been around for a long time. It's typically to treat diabetes. I had this happen with one of my patients. <laughs> she said, Dr. Stanford, is there anything left? And I was like, we can try metformin. And she lost 63 pounds. Now, I mean, I tried all the traditional meds. And that's where she needed her, her obviously, intervention. She really needed to act on leptin, GLP-1, and neuropeptide Y, which is what, what metformin does. And I didn't think it was going to be effective because it just it's like, it's not really an obesity drug. I mean, why should that work? But wouldn't it have been nice for me to know that two and a half years before we got to the metformin, which is the $2 drug, that that was her drug. That would have been nice. I mean, if I had had that biology piece of the puzzle, I'm sure I could have figured that out much sooner. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get there eventually. I hope so. I will see. Farmer, are you listening? <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. Can you just close with where to find more of your work and any other recommended resources? Well, I am all over the place. So if you <laughs> look for Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, you can go to askdrfatima.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at askdrfatima. Feel free to, to look me up and see You know, if you have any burning thoughts, feel free to send them my way. 
I can't promise that I will get to them because there are a lot of safeguards before you get to me, but I can tell you that I am interested in just improving the care of all patients with obesity here in the U.S. and around the world. And that's where my focus is. And that's where I'm going to continue to spend my time, attention and care. Well, you certainly bring a lot of energy and a lot of expertise to the table. So thanks for doing that. Absolutely. All right. Take care. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. 